Amen. So last week we began our, our three-week Advent series that we are calling Hark. Hark because of the Christmas carol it's inspired by, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and also Hark because it's what we're meant to do at Christmas. At Christmas it is about listening, listening to what God has done for you and for me by sending his son to not only be born like us, not only to live among us, but to die for us so that we might have and that we might experience God's peace, God's presence, and God's eternal life. And last week, as we began our, our series, we read uh, the first verse of that carol today together. And I want to read to you just the first lines of the second verse of that ancient Christmas carol. It says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. And when we read the words of Charles Wesley, we see a man who has a great big picture of Jesus in his mind. Mr. Wesley saw and believed and he loved the truth that the scriptures so clearly show us that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Yahweh, that he is the second member of the Trinity, that from everlasting to everlasting, Jesus Christ is God, that he is the one seated upon the throne in heaven right now being worshiped by multitudes upon multitudes of angels, and that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Wesley understood the majesty and the glory of Jesus. And that, again, should not come as a surprise to us because the scripture teaches this about Jesus, that he is Lord, that he is God. The apostle John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, he recognized that and he opens up John chapter one, his gospel, by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not made anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I love that John opens up his Christmas story, his telling of the incarnation in this way, because we can so often look at Jesus Christ, the man, in his weakness, in his flesh, and forget that he is Jesus Christ, the word, that he is the eternal God, who was with the Father, who was with the Spirit at the beginning, that he created everything around us that we see. The scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ is Lord of all creation, and every moment that we have on this earth is because Jesus wills it. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 17, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Our Jesus that we worship and celebrate during the season is the lamb who was seated upon the throne in heaven. He is the one to whom angels and the people of God are crying out, worthy are you, O Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and might and wealth and power and blessing. He is Jesus the Lamb and he is Jesus the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the King. And the reality of who Jesus is, that he is the King, makes that him all the more powerful because of what he has done. Because Jesus Christ has come. That hymn will continue on saying, Late in time, behold, he comes, offspring of the virgin womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. 
pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And if all the, Old, the New Testament did was made the image of Jesus so much more clearer in our eyes that he is Lord, that would be enough to give God praise and glory. But that's not all the New Testament has to say about Jesus, is it? No, the, the wonder of the New Testament, the period of time that uh, these books in our Bible all focus around is that in the first century AD, in the land of Israel, in the small town of Bethlehem, Jesus came down to earth. Deity itself took on human flesh. The second person of the Trinity not only became fully human, he was born of a woman, born as a baby, vulnerable. It's not more vulnerable than a, like, little, a little squishy baby. And he was glad to do this for you and for me. Jesus was glad not only to live on earth, veiling his glory, but he was glad to live as a man like us. And the theologians would say this, that God in the incarnation, he condescended to us. He lowered himself for us. God became a servant for us. And he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And in doing this, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness and to bring us back to God. And that is why we sing and why the scriptures call Jesus Emmanuel. And this morning we want to focus on that word and that name and that beautiful title for Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. That God has come down to us, that the word, as John says, became flesh and he dwelt, he tabernacled among us. When Jesus came to earth, God's presence was once more among mankind. And we know, as Christians, this needed to happen. You know, if Jesus coming to earth was God with us, by implication that means before that, we were without God. That something has happened that has torn the relationship between humanity and God. That we no longer enjoy the presence that we were created to enjoy with him. Something has happened that separated us from him. And we know what that is. It's sin. It is the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve, it says, they used to walk with God in the cool of the day. But because of their rebellion, because of their rejection of God's ways, he not only casts them out of Eden... He casts them away from his presence. And so the whole story of the Bible, as we know, is a revelation that God wants to be with his people. And in order for that to happen, God would have to deal with sin himself. And to deal with sin, he would become a man and die for that sin. What that tells us, before we even open our Bibles... And it's something that we've said a few times over the last few months going through Galatians. But it's that the Lord does want to know us. And he is making it possible. Like God is not playing hide and seek with us. To where we have to try try find him behind a corner. It's not a game of Marco Polo where we're walking around blindfolded trying to reach out and touch God. God is like the father in the story of the prodigal son who runs towards his children. And we see him running towards us in the incarnation. Now, last week, we looked at uh, Luke's account 
Luke's description of the incarnation of Jesus. And this morning we want to look at Matthew's telling of the story. So if you're in Matthew uh, chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now we learned about this last week in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel, he appears to Mary, and he's like, greetings, O favored one. God is with you. Don't, don't be afraid. <coughs> Gabriel appears to Mary. He says, Mary, I have great news. You are going to conceive, and from your womb will be born a son. And his name will be, he will be great, he says. His name will be Jesus. He says he will be called Son of the Most High, and he will have a kingdom that will not end. And Gabriel delivers this powerful message to Mary, but we notice one problem. Mary is a virgin. She has never had relations with any man. So she asks the question, well, how is this going to be? And so he says, it's going to be from God. God is going to do this. God is going to make this happen. He will bring it about. And Mary hears, and Mary believes. But Matthew tells us that at this point, Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothal, think of like an engagement, but much more than an engagement. It's like you're legally married, but you're not actually yet married. You're not living together, and you haven't uh, slept together. Luke's account of the gospel tells us what's happening with Mary, uh, primarily in the birth of Jesus. But Matthew gives us an insight into the mind of Joseph. And we have to think of how hard this must have been for Joseph. Like one day, he notices his betrothed is getting a little heavy and it's not winter weights. And he, she keeps getting, <laughs> so I got it. She keeps getting bigger and she is pregnant and he is not the father. Like can you imagine the turmoil in his heart? And Joseph at this point, he could have exposed Mary he could have called the wedding off. He could have had her killed for the accusation of adultery, stoned to death under the law. But Joseph is called an honorable man in the scriptures, and he doesn't do this. It says in verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So you can see he felt deeply for Mary. Joseph loved Mary. And he was torn inside about what to do. And one night, as he is falling asleep, deliberating as what should be his plan of action, an angel appears to him. And this angel says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And so this angel appears to Joseph in a dream, and he makes him aware that this baby inside Mary's womb is going to be a son. It's going to be a little boy. But this boy will not just be Joseph's stepson. This boy will be Joseph's savior. This boy was the one who was promised, the Messiah, the one who was coming to defeat the enemies of God and to save his people from their sins. And Joseph, it says, he believes Mary. And he believes the angel. And from that point, Luke gives us a very simple, or sorry, Matthew gives us a very simple and humble account of the birth of Jesus. 
It says this, it says, verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to her son, and he called his name Jesus. So like Luke, it's a very simple and very humble account of the birth of the Savior of the world. But you might have noticed in the middle of that passage, we skipped over it, Matthew inserts by the Holy Spirit a little bit of commentary. He says in verse 22, she, uh, sorry, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What Joseph, oh sorry, what Matthew is saying there is that there is something more than meets the eye that is going on here. Tied up in the birth of Jesus was the prophecy of God, and a very specific prophecy at that. He says here, he's quoting from the prophet, he's quoting from Isaiah. And he says, what was happening in the birth of Jesus was a fulfillment of something the Lord had spoken many, many years ago. And he, he quotes this little bit from, from, from Isaiah. And what that would have done in the mind of the readers would have brought you back to that passage in Isaiah. There is an assumption that we know what is going on here, that we know this passage of Isaiah and we know what's happening. And so we ask the question, well, what is actually going on? here in, in Isaiah. What's the deal with Emmanuel? Isn't Emmanuel just this beautiful name that we call Jesus and sing about at Christmas time? To see what's going on, we need to go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 7, uh, to the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember we spoke about Ahaz. Do you remember him? He wasn't a very good king. It says he didn't please the Lord. He didn't walk in the ways of his father David. Um, he was on the naughty list because he was guilty of idolatry and, and child sacrifice. Those things will not get you in God's good books. He was not a good guy. And what the Lord tells us in Isaiah 7 is that during the reign of Ahaz, um, these two kings, they decide to come together and make war against Ahaz. And it tells us in Isaiah 7, it's Rezin, the son, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel. Now, it's important to note, at this point in Israel's history, um, David has died, Solomon has died, and the kingdom is split. And so in the north of Israel, you have these ten tribes, which makes up Israel, and in the south, you have Judah and Benjamin, which is the kingdom of Judah, where you know, the, the house of David sat upon the throne. And what happens is, at this point, um, Israel and Syria, they make an alliance and they declare war on Ahaz. And Isaiah 7 tells us they go to Jerusalem and they're laying siege to the city. Now, Jerusalem, if you don't know Jerusalem, it's built on a hill. And unlike, say, Waterford, which has a lot of hills, it is a landlocked city. What that means is you could not get in by river. You couldn't get supplies in by river. There was one way into Jerusalem, and there was one way out of Jerusalem, and that was down the hill. And so if you were caught on a siege, you were surrounded. You were trapped. You could not get out. Supplies couldn't be snuck in, and you could not escape. So they're, they're walled in like some battle from Lord of the Rings or something. And what happens is, 
it tells us that Israel and Syria, they could not um, launch a successful attack on Jerusalem, and so they played a waiting game. It's a siege, so they're going to wait outside, and they're going to let the inhabitants of Jerusalem either starve to death or surrender from, from weakness. And so Ahaz and his people are in a very bad place. In fact, it tells us that their hearts were shaking like trees in a forest. They had no fight in them. They were terrified. They didn't know what to do. No one was coming to help them. They were trapped. And maybe we say they deserved it. These people had abandoned the Lord. They were practicing child sacrifice. They were, they were worshiping idols in the hills. They were not following in the ways of their God. They had abandoned the Lord. But what we see in Isaiah 7 is though Judah had abandoned their God, God did not abandon them. In the middle of this siege, he sends Isaiah. And Isaiah goes into the city somehow, and he tells the people, Israel will not win. Your city will not be destroyed. And in fact, in the next 65 years, Syria and Israel will be destroyed instead. God is going to bring a victory. And the Lord's word to his people here is to stand firm and to believe. He says in Isaiah 7, 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Judah at this point could not stand upon its king. It couldn't stand upon its armies. It couldn't stand upon its resources. All these things right now were like sinking sand. And if they were to place their trust in the king or their military or their might, they would fall. They're going to fall flat on their faces. They would lose. And instead, the Lord says, stand firm in faith. Faith in me, faith in what I have said, faith in that my ways are best, faith that what I say will happen will come to pass. And if you stand firm in, my, in your faith, victory will come. This reminds me of the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus is closing off the Sermon on the Mount, he says the wise person is the person who doesn't build their life on the things that they have, the materials, their connections. The wise person is the person who builds his life or her life on the words of Jesus. That if you are a person who hears the word of God and obeys the word of God and listens to the command from the Lord, you will not fall. No matter what trial comes your way, no matter what temptation, no matter what stumbling block comes, if your life is being built on a solid ground, you will stand. And these people were meant to build their life right now, what little of their life was left upon the word of the Lord, to stand firm in their faith. And I love this image because of the grace of God it shows here. Again, these people, these people were reaping what they sowed. They did not deserve any salvation from the Lord. They had abandoned him. They had gone into idolatry. And even now, when they are reaping the consequences of their sin, they have a chance to, to turn things around. They have a chance to sow into faith. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul talks about reaping and sowing. And he says, in our life as followers of Christ, we can either... Sow into the spirit or sow into the flesh. And the thing that you sow and pour your life out into, you will reap those things. Judah was reaping while it sowed, and yet even now, they had a chance to change things around. If you are reaping from the flesh, even today, 
Maybe the consequences of your sin, past sin and present sin, is coming off the bite you and the bite behind. God is speaking to you. You have the opportunity to turn things around, and all you need to do is stand firm in your faith. And so the Lord, he speaks to his people, and what he does then is he actually speaks directly to King Ahaz through Isaiah. Even the wicked king has a chance to hear from God and to obey him. And we see this in verse uh, 10 of Isaiah 7. It says, The Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, that it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And what this tells us is that Ahaz must have had some doubt in his heart about God's word and God's commands. And so the Lord, he turns his attention to this king. He says, Ahaz, ask me for a sign. It doesn't matter how big it is. It doesn't matter how, how small it is. I want to give you, Ahaz, a sign so that you will know that I am with you and I will bring about a victory. And what's amazing is Ahaz says no. It says in verse 12, Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. It's an interesting response when God shows up to you and says, I want to give you a sign. I want to let you know that I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring a victory in your life. And you say, no, Lord, no. don't want to do that. Now, we might perhaps think in our head that Ahaz is showing some kind of humility here. You know, Jesus once said to the crowds, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, right? But before you think this is an act of faith, Isaiah lets us know that this was actually doubt. This was mistrust on the part of Ahaz. Ahaz isn't saying, oh, Lord God, I know you. I know who you are. I don't need a sign because I know you're going to come true. Ahaz is saying, Lord, I am not going to ask you for a sign. It's not, it's not a deflection full of fate, but one full of fear and mistrust. And we know this because of the Lord's response to Isaiah in verse 13. He says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you must weary my God also? So Isaiah says that the Lord is weary with him. I mean, can you blame him? Like, the Lord is stepping out again and again towards Ahaz. He's pursuing him. He wants to help him. He wants Ahaz to trust him. Ahaz does not deserve this. He is guilty of child sacrifice and idolatry and leading the people away from God. And yet even now God is saying, return to me. And Ahaz says, no. And this, I think, tells us something about the nature of faith and the nature of trust when it comes to God. You know, when we say no to the Lord, when we say no to his word, no to his ways and his commandments, when we doubt God and when we, re when we reject him, we aren't just doubting or rejecting some kind of abstract concept of a God who's out there and is far away and indifferent and unfeeling. When we doubt and when we reject the word of God, we are rejecting something that is personal. We are rejecting someone who has stepped forward to help us. And we say, no, I don't trust you. You're not to be trusted, God. To say, I'm not going to place my faith in God is to say that God's not worthy of that faith. That there is something in God's character that is worthy of mistrust. And it's, it's, 
It's arrogant, and Ahaz was arrogant. And if he wanted to go deeper with the Lord in the situation, he needed to repent of that mistrust. But getting back to it, the Lord has given him a sign, he's offered him a sign, and he says no. And perhaps we think at this point, God is just going to say, fine, have it your way. You know, you've made your bed, lay in it, enjoy being a slave to Israel, enjoy the silence, I'm not going to speak to you anymore. And if God did that, he would have been in the right. He was not the wrong party, and he wasn't, you know, the person in the wrong in this situation. But that's not what he does. What's wonderful about the Lord is the Lord goes beyond our expectations. When we, when we expect him to be harsh and, and cruel and you know, condemning us, he does the exact opposite. I love in how when the Lord reveals himself to Israel after the situation of the golden calf, he says that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, who is gracious, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. God is so long-suffering towards us. He is so patient with us. He is so kind with us. And so the Lord, he continues through Isaiah in verse 14, and he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord says, even though you're not going to ask for a sign it has, I'm going to give you a sign. And this sign is going to be wonderful. It's going to be something that has never been done before. A virgin will give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And the Lord says, you know, Ahaz, I'm not going to tell you when this is going to happen. But notice, before this boy grows up, and knows how to do my will, I'm going to defeat your enemies. I'm going to defeat Israel. I'm going to defeat Syria. They're going to be destroyed. Victory is coming. And so Emmanuel is a sign of victory and a sign of hope. And what Ahaz and Judah needed to do right now is not lose hope. They were to look to the Lord, to stand firm, to return to him, to become obedient to him, and watch him bring the victory. So you see, the promise of Emmanuel, when we say that word, it is a promise of salvation. It is a promise of victory over our enemies. It is a promise of freedom from captivity, a promise of return from exile, and a promise of, once again, having that close, that intimate fellowship with the Lord. And the Lord does this. He saves Judah. He defeats their enemies. And Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he looks at this prophecy of Isaiah, and he looks at the birth of Jesus, and he says, he is the sign. Jesus is the sign. He is Emmanuel. He is the sign of God's victory. God was going to save his people, because that's what the name of Jesus means. It means salvation of Yahweh. Yahweh's salvation. And so Matthew, he looks at the birth of Jesus, and he says, just as the Lord delivered Judah from their enemies, the Lord is once again going to do the exact same thing. He is going to save his people. But he's not going to do it against the Romans. He's going to save them, as Gabriel says, from their sin. 
And what a shocker that must have been for the reader of Matthew's gospel, that the greatest enemy to the Jews and the greatest enemy to God's people weren't the Romans, it wasn't the political force, it wasn't an enemy nation, it wasn't the people of this world. Their greatest enemy is sin and death. That's what we need to realize. Those people out there aren't our enemies. They are, they are lost. They are held captive by the devil. And they are under the power of sin and death. And Jesus came to break the power of sin and death. And he needs to because it is sin. It is death that separates us from God. It is the thing that destroys our relationship with one another. And sin is that thing that keeps making us mess up time and time and time again. And so Jesus... Emmanuel was born, not to rule over us in his first coming, but to, again, to, to, to put himself below us, to become a servant for us, to humble himself to the point of death on the cross. Again, Jesus gave himself on the cross for our sins. He gave us his very life so that we would be delivered back to God from this present evil age. Because Jesus died for our sins on the cross, because he took the penalty that we could never pay back to God, because he was buried and rose again and is seated on high, we get to experience today, not when we die, we experience today the joy of knowing God. When we believe in Jesus, the scripture says the Holy Spirit is poured into us and we have it. We have the one thing that humanity longs for and it doesn't realize it needs. We have God. And with God comes satisfaction. With God comes wholeness. With God comes the, you know, that, that lack of longing goes because we have the one thing we were created to have, and that is Him. At Advent, we look back to the coming of Emmanuel. We look back at all that Jesus has brought us but we don't just look back, do we? We look forward. We look forward because the coming of Jesus is twofold. He came the first time in weakness, in weakness to deliver us from our sin, but he is coming back a second time. And he is coming back to bring us into his kingdom. And we need this because I don't know if you noticed, Jesus isn't here today in the same way he was with his disciples. Yes, we've been given the Holy Spirit, but this is the age of the church, and the church is on a mission. We have been commissioned by Jesus to go into the world, to spread the good news of the gospel, to bring the kingdom. But while we are doing this, while we are being busy doing the work of God, we are called to wait. We are called to wait and to look and to trust for the coming of Jesus once again. We are looking forward to seeing our Emmanuel. Jesus is going to return and we will be with him. And it is a promise we need to realize is a true promise for you and for me. It is a promise Jesus made himself during the Last Supper. In John 14, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Later on, later on in John 14, Jesus will say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
He says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So we have a glorious promise of the return of Jesus. He is coming back. There's only one problem with that promise for me. I have to wait. And waiting can be really hard. I hate waiting for things. I, am, I like to move. I like to go fast. I, I don't have a whole lot of patience. It's something the Holy Spirit is working out in me, and yet we are called as Christians to wait, to wait for the return of Jesus. And between now and that glorious day when we see him face to face, there's going to become times when it is hard. There will be times when there is sorrow, where there is anguish, and there is pain. It's something very real for a lot of people around Christmas, isn't it? A lot of people for Christmas, it's not the most wonderful time of the year. It's a time of, of sorrow for a lot of people. You know, we can look around at the world that is suffering. We can see sin destroying people's lives. We can see sin ruining our walk with the Lord. And we can see uh, persecution and hardship that comes from following after Jesus. And it's something we should expect. And if that's you, if you're in a rough spot with your walk this morning, if you're looking at the sin around you, if you're looking at the suffering in the world, and you're thinking, how long, Lord? Why is it like this? First thing you should know is you're not crazy um, because the scriptures say this is going to happen. It's actually something Jesus promised. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. We say, thanks, Jesus, for that promise. I don't really want that one. But he doesn't end it there. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Jesus has promised us that a day is coming where we will know a joy that will not be taken away. Where we will see him face to face and we will rejoice and be with him forever. But until that day comes, we must, like Ahaz, like Judah, and like the people of God before us, stand firm in our faith. We must look to the Lord and to the coming of Emmanuel. And so with his coming, and with that in mind, I want us to bring three things to our attention, three things to take away with us from our study of Matthew and Isaiah. And the first is this. Don't give up. I don't know if you need to hear that warning, but do not give up. We go through hard seasons as Christians, and you might be in a hard season right now. You might be sowing from, you might be reaping from what you sow in the flesh. You might be facing hardship and rejection and suffering for your faith. Maybe, maybe the enemy is condemning you because you've fallen down too many times. Maybe you are just suffering from a broken, sick world, and you're wanting Jesus to come back and to heal your body and to make you new and to be with him. The Lord's word for us is to get up and stand. 
to stand firm in the faith, to press towards the goal, to run the race with endurance, to not give up, and just to keep looking to Jesus because he is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life. Another thing we see from our study this morning, and again, we mentioned it earlier, but I want to say to us again, God wants to know us. He wants to know you. He has made and done everything that is required for us to to be with him. And so if God has put his foot forward towards us, and he, he is walking towards us, we need to respond in the exact same way. We need to be intentional about practicing the presence of the Lord, of being with him. And how do we do that? It comes by actually praying with him. It comes by reading his word. It comes by taking communion with him. It comes by singing his praises in worship with the saints. If you want to know him in the life to come, it starts by knowing him in the life that is now. And so we must commit today to knowing him more and more. And finally, the last thing we're called to do in the story of Emmanuel is simply to give God praise, to give God glory. Jesus, in taking on human flesh, in identifying with us, in dying for us, he has done a great thing. And the Word of God says that because Jesus humbled himself, the Father has now exalted him. Philippians 2 tells us, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A day is coming when every person who has ever lived, every person who will ever live, whether they're a founder of a religion or the ruler of an empire, whether they're the president of a country or the lowliest of servants, every person will bend the knee to Jesus. And every person will confess that he is Lord. But we have the pleasure of doing that today. These people will do it perhaps against their will. They'll have to humble themselves before God and admit they were wrong and Jesus was right. But guys, we have the pleasure of praising him today. We have the joy of saying, thank you, Jesus, for coming, for becoming one of us, for lowering yourself, for living for us, for dying for us today. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to praise the name of Jesus. Let us give him the praise he is due this morning. Let's raise a hallelujah, as the song says. Let's sing to our God. Let's lift our voices. Let's lift our knees. Let's put our hands in the air. And let's give him the praise that he is due. Because he is worthy of it. But first, as we do that, let's bow our heads and let's pray. As we go into a time of worship, I want to remind you, we do have the elements of communion in the back where we get to have a little glimpse of Emmanuel today. We get to remember that Jesus is going to take that cup with us in his kingdom, that he is coming back for his bride and we will be with him forever. I encourage you, if you're a Christian, please take communion. As you worship, if you feel the Spirit of God leading you um, to, to, to maybe overcome an issue in your life or to seek help, um, Jean and Vinny are going to be in the back and they would love to pray with you if you want prayer. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you are Emmanuel, that you are 
God with us. Do you have stepped down into human history? You have changed everything, Jesus. Lord, we are standing here and sitting here right now, alive forevermore because of what you have done. And Jesus, there, there is a world outside that not praising your name right now. May we be people who praise your name here this morning, God. May we sing that, Jesus, you are our Emmanuel. You are our servant king. And you have given us the joy that can never be taken away. God, as we go this week, may we go away with the knowledge that you are with us, that you are bringing about the victory, that one day, Lord, you will raise our bodies from the dead. We will have freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the pain in this world. And we will have you. We will walk with you, Jesus. As I was studying for the sermon this week, uh, the, the verses from Revelation 21 uh, kept coming back to my mind. And I was like, okay, Lord, why are you bringing this to me today? And where can they even go into the sermon? And I, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't put it in. But I really felt impressed to read these words to you before you worship, because these words are your future. Revelation 21 Verse 1 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those words are your future. And if you know Jesus today, those first seven verses are about you. That you will dwell with God forever. That you will be his people. That he will be your God. We will dwell with Jesus. We will drink from the waters of life without payment. We will know him. But if you don't know Jesus, then verse 8 is your future. It is a, it is a separation from God where we don't experience second and new life, we experience second death. And so you know, as, as we pray, and we go into a time of worship, if you don't know Jesus, if there's someone in here who does not have a full commitment to him, then you need to make a decision today. You need to make a choice for Jesus today. Because the promise is if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You know, maybe you believe that in your heart, but you're, you've been afraid. You haven't been able to make that confession. 
I remember the first time I went to church, um, someone at the very end did one of these things where like, you know, if you want to know Jesus, put up your hand and pray at me. And you know, I believed in my heart, but I was afraid to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so guys, I want to ask if we could all just bow our heads for a moment and close our eyes. And you know, if you don't know Jesus this morning, we would, you're, you're among friends, you're among people who love you, and we would love you to come into the kingdom. You know, maybe if you've seen through our sermon and our text this morning that God is walking towards mankind, that God is reaching out towards mankind, that he wants to know you, make that decision for Jesus today. You know, all you need to do is raise your hand, confess Jesus is Lord. And you're amongst friends, you're amongst people who love you, and you're in the presence of a God who loves you all the more. So again, if you don't know Jesus, you know, raise your hand, confess him as Lord today. If you're afraid to do that even in, in public, come to the back and we will pray for you. Lord God, we thank you that we are in a room of people who love you, and who have been called according to your purpose. God, we pray in this coming year, in this coming season, many, many, many people, Jesus, will make a decision for you to open up their hearts, God, and receive you. God, may it be on our hearts, Lord, to bring people to you, to this place, so they may confess, Jesus, that you are Lord. God, as we have confessed that ourselves, we just want to praise you and worship you now. We love you, God. Thank you that you've made the way possible. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.